Welcome to the Cato Institute on this, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of welfare reform. My name is Vanessa Brown Calder, and I am a welfare analyst here at Cato. Delighted to have our audience um, here in person, as well as those that are joining us through television or internet. As my colleague mentioned, for those who are live tweeting the event, it is hashtag welfare20th, welfare20th, if you want to tweet us there. Also very happy to be joined by our panelists here, who I'm going to introduce to you in a moment. But first, let's introduce the topic. As we know from Michael Tanner's opening remarks, the 96 welfare reform law was a comprehensive bipartisan overhaul of welfare law. It dramatically reshaped the federal cash and food welfare programs in the United States. Specifically, it replaced Aid to Families with Dependent Children, or AFDC, with Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, or TANF, and it had a few features which made it particularly notable. It imposed time limits and work requirements on some welfare beneficiaries. It also granted states greater latitude in designing their own welfare programs, and it provided incentives to states to limit out-of-wedlock births, as well as to create goals around teen pregnancy and limiting teen pregnancy, among other things. Critics of the welfare reform predicted that the welfare reform would drive low-income families into deeper poverty, and it would keep them there. And we see a resurgence in that particular line of thought in some recent scholarship on the topic. Advocates, on the other hand, insisted that welfare reform would move welfare recipients into permanent jobs, and thereby it would increase economic self-sufficiency as well as economic mobility, and it would strengthen families, among other things. So, at the 20th anniversary of welfare reform, we are obliged to ask whether any of these things actually happened. How does welfare reform live up to its promises? Did it affect family structure, health, child achievement, and individual economic independence? Did it provide an adequate safety net, particularly during the last decade of economic turmoil? So without further ado, I'm going to introduce the individuals who are going to answer those very questions today. Um, let me uh, just hold your applause till the end, if you would. I'll start with Heather Hahn, who's here on my right. Heather is a senior fellow in the Center for Labor, Human Services, and Population at the Urban Institute. She's also a national TANF expert with two decades of experience conducting nonpartisan research on a wide range of programs and policies related to the well-being of children and families, including TANF, food stamps, and other supports for low-income families. We also have Ron Haskins here on my right who is a senior fellow in the Economic Studies Program and co-director of the Center on Children and Families at the Brookings Institution. And he's a senior consultant at the Annie E. Casey Foundation. He's the author of Work Over Welfare, the inside story of the 1996 welfare reform law. Robert Verbruggen is to my left here. Robert is a managing editor at the American Conservative, where he moved after a decade in journalism that included stints at National Interest, The Washington Times, National Review, and Real Clear Policy. He is also a contributor at Family Studies, where he has written about welfare reform. And finally, we have Scott Winship. Scott is the Walter B. Wriston Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. 
Previously, he was a fellow at the Brookings Institution and earlier a research manager at the Economic Mobility Project at Pew Charitable Trusts and a senior policy advisor at Third Way. He has testified before Congress on poverty, inequality, and joblessness, among other issues. Let's give each of our panelists a warm welcome, and then we'll turn the time over to Heather to start us off. Good morning. So we're here to talk about welfare reform turning 20. Is it a success, a failure, incomplete? And what is turning 20 is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Uh, if we're talking about welfare writ large, that is much older and pieces are newer, but it's TANF that is um, turning 20. So that's what I'm going to focus my comments on. So we know that with TANF, uh, it ended the entitlement to assistance. It shifted major responsibilities to states, gave them a block grant instead of entitlement funding. We know that after TANF, caseloads plummeted. They had been falling shortly before reform and they, they fell much further afterward. We also know that employment among single mothers increased in the short time after welfare reform. But then we need to get to the questions that you raised did welfare reform help people move from welfare to work? Did it improve economic self-sufficiency and mobility? Did it provide an adequate safety net, especially during the recession? Is it still relevant today? And that's what I'm going to talk about. So I want to start with something that I think welfare reform, and by that I do mean TANF, did. And I think it really helped to shift the focus to work. The reason is, the 1996 welfare reform itself came about in part because of a mismatch between the former AFDC rules that limited recipients' ability to work and a mismatch with the changing societal norms in which more and more mothers were working outside the home. So some of the changes leading up to uh, welfare reform started to address that issue, but both TANF and the changing societal norms solidified that pro-work focus. When I talk with welfare recipients now, I hear people say, this is a, a quote from someone I talked with recently, who said, I would give anything and trade all the tan if I could ever get for a stable job. The other people in the room said, absolutely, amen. So I think this desire to work is very clear. People recognize the economic, social, and psychological benefits of work. And a combination of the TANF rules, a strong economy, EITC expansion, and other factors contributed to an increase in employment among single mothers in the early years following TANF, um, following the, the implementation of TANF, although those gains were lost. Um, the employment of never married mothers increased to match the, the rate of childless mothers, uh, childless um, single women. Um, but once they got in tandem, those have fallen together. And that's um, Donna Pavetti's work that I'm quoting. Uh, so I just want to um, pause here. Most of what I'm going to be looking at is looking back, but I do want to take this moment to look forward from this lesson. Looking ahead, I think that the safety net of the future needs to change again to fit the changing nature of work. In the last 20 years, work has become even more unstable and unpredictable for low-wage earners, for both men and women, and those fundamental issues need to be matched up again with our, our welfare reform. 
Welfare reform, and by this again I mean TANF, did not improve economic self-sufficiency. For three reasons. It reaches few needy families. It doesn't effectively help people get and keep jobs. And it did not provide a safety net during the recession. Let's look first at this issue about TANF reaching few needy families. We know that 1.6 million families in the average month in 2015 received TANF cash assistance. That's down from 4.4 million in 1996. But what is 1.6 million? Is that too many? Is that uh, not enough? Is that the right number? A more useful number to look at is how many people who are poor are receiving TANF. And again, this is Center on Budget Policy Priorities um, research. What we see is that in 1996, 68% of poor families received cash assistance. That has fallen to 23% of poor families receiving cash assistance in 2014. A GAO report showed that in the early years following TANF, actually the, almost the first decade, from 1995 to 2005, 87% of the caseload decline was due to non-participation of eligible adults. Rather than, it wasn't that people had too much earnings and therefore they were no longer eligible and so caseloads declined. It was that people were eligible but uh, not receiving TANF. Almost 40% of cases today are child-only cases. So when we look at the 23% the of poor families receiving assistance and we see that 40% of those are child-only cases, uh, it's a pretty small piece of the um, poor families who are being served by TANF. This, this national picture masks variation by state. There are 12 states that serve fewer than 1 in 10 poor families. And there are more and more states every year in that category. Then for those who do receive assistance, that, that cash assistance can be essential for making the difference in their lives, but the benefit amounts are so low that they do not bring families out of deep poverty, much less out of poverty. So receiving TANF is not going to affect the poverty level um, by that, because the cash assistance is too low. So TANF also does not effectively help people get and keep jobs. Even though there was this great focus on work and a rhetoric around work and a desire to work, the federal TANF rules, especially since 2005, create incentives that limit access to key work preparation activities. States have strong financial incentives to steer clients to activities that help the state meet its requirements rather than focusing activities on, focusing on activities that are tailored to the individual needs to achieve self-sufficiency. There are very complicated requirements for states around who they can count and how many hours and what counts, um, but they drive state incentives um, for state programs. They emphasize immediate work and job search, even if jobs aren't available or if the client has significant challenges, as many do. Job search is a, is a core activity. It is limited to six weeks per year. Vocational training is a is a very important activity for helping people reach long-term self-sufficiency. It's limited to 12 months in a lifetime. Basic skills training or longer-term education and training are not allowed to count toward the state's work requirement. So states have incentives to not allow those activities for their clients. This doesn't mean people are just languishing on TANF. People do get jobs. 
people leave TANF for jobs, but they are typically unstable, low-wage jobs. And when they lose those jobs, they return to TANF. Research shows that a large number of the people applying for TANF are doing so because they recently lost a job. And when they get jobs again, they're the same kinds of jobs that they lost to get them on TANF in the first place. So TANF ends up working as an unemployment insurance for very low-wage workers, rather than a ladder up to self-sufficiency. Other programs, especially the EITC, do support um, low-wage working families, but only those with earnings, and neither TANF nor EITC is helping people get those earnings in the first place. And then TANF did not provide a safety net during the recession. During the recession, unemployment rates doubled. The number of TANF cases rose by 13%. Because TANF reaches only the deeply poor families and serves less than a quarter of families in poverty, many of those who were struggling during the recession and may have thought that they could use some cash assistance didn't qualify for TANF. They weren't poor enough despite their struggles. Or they may have seen that the work requirements could be counterproductive to their obtaining full-time steady employment. What TANF did do during the recession with some targeted funding was offer short-term subsidized employment, which was enormously popular with businesses and clients alike and has been shown to be successful. That's an experiment that uh, we should look to again. Other programs, especially SNAP, did respond to the increased need during the recession, but not TANF. So what has TANF been doing these last 20 years? TANF has evolved from, a cash, from cash assistance to a broad funding stream. These numbers from HHS show how spending has shifted away from cash assistance. If we look at 1997, that blue bar at the bottom of basic cash assistance is 71% of spending. And in 2015, only 25% of the TANF block grant and state, um, also the state maintenance of effort spending, 25% went to basic assistance. 7% went to work activities, 17% went to childcare, and more than half, 52%, went to other things like state EITCs, college scholarships, child protective services, all valuable and worthy causes, but not what we think of as TANF and what we think of as cash assistance. And if we look at that 17% that goes to childcare, only 6% of that 17% goes to families who are receiving TANF cash assistance. The, most of it, the, of the rest, you know, most of it, either half of it goes to um, direct TANF spending on families who are not receiving cash assistance, so it's like non-assistance to help them, or it's transferred to the Child Care and Development Block Grant. Looking forward, it is very important that we address the shortcomings of TANF and the broader safety net. Because growing up poor has long-term negative consequences for children. My colleagues Caroline Ratcliffe and Signa Mary McKernan and many others have written about the lasting consequences of child poverty. And this is whether you measure it, you know, if it's relative or absolute, just even looking at the federal poverty measure. Children growing up in poverty in the United States have poorer consequences. Children born into poor families have worse adolescent and adult outcomes than children born into non-poor families. 
the chronic stress of childhood poverty actually alters early brain development in ways that impedes their future success. Pavetti has done work on that as well. Harry Holzer estimates the economic cost of child poverty is more than $500 billion a year. So we cannot be okay with a temporary assistance for needy families program that doesn't reach seven out of 10 poor families and doesn't effectively assist them in getting on their feet. I just want to talk very briefly with some ideas about what we should be doing. And I started to preview this earlier, but the next changes to our safety net need to recognize the changing nature of work, the unstable, unpredictable nature of low-wage work where people are get a call to say, okay, come into work now, oh, we don't need you. It's very difficult in that kind of unstable environment to have multiple jobs, to have stable childcare, or to be going to school or seeking additional training opportunities for advancement. These are real challenges for both men and women. The low wages and stagnant work rates of men contribute to poverty among single and two-parent households. People want to work. We go back to that quote I had at the beginning. They'd give anything to have a stable job that could support their families. And we need the policies and the job structures to support that. And I echo the, the comments made in the introduction about the much broader set of issues around criminal justice and education and so forth that need to work together to support people's desire to work. We also still need a safety net for the times in people's lives when they cannot work or when they cannot find work. Again, going back to the growing up poor has long-term negative consequences for children. We can't afford to punish parents because we're punishing their children and the rest of us as well. Specific changes for TANF that I would like to see are increased funding, especially indexed to increase during the recession so that it can be responsive. Restructure those incentives to have a balanced set of incentives focused on work, family economic stability, and child well-being. All three of those are important. And then to look beyond TANF to fully support low-income families with the full package of supports, tax credits, Medicaid, SNAP, and others that, are, that have been shown to reduce the hardship on those families. Thank you. I'm going to give two speeches. In the first one, I'm going to praise TANF, and in the second one, I'm going to criticize it. Uh, and I regret to inform you that my criticisms are very similar uh, to Dr. Hahn's criticisms. Uh, let me first say that uh, Michael did a good job of summarizing uh, the background on welfare reform. Welfare reform was really a very strict set of work requirements that were implemented aggressively by the states. There was a lot of doubt at the time that the states would really do it. They really did remove the entitlement. They really did impose work requirements. They really did penalize people who didn't work, and eventually kept people off the rolls. I think they are keeping a lot of people off the rolls that probably they shouldn't. And as a result of that, the caseload declined by around 60% within three or four years. Nothing like that, to my knowledge, had ever happened to a federal program. So I want to begin, though, by talking about, how do I advance this? Okay, here we go. Uh, I want to begin the results by talking about work, because those people all left welfare. Where did they go? There were urban studies that show that 60 to 70% of them actually had work. 
at some point in the first six months after the welfare reform. So let's look at the data for the country as a whole. If you look at the left, the top line graph is males, the next one is all females, and the next one is never married females. Never married females were the heart of the welfare problem we had before and I would suggest still today. They are more likely to go on welfare than any other group, more likely to be on welfare, and here I'm talking about welfare considered broadly, not just TANF, but also food stamps, Medicaid, and so forth. Uh, women who have a baby outside marriage are highly likely to be poor and to go on welfare. That has always been the case, and it still is today. So you can see by looking at the all wealth, uh, the never married uh, women chart, there's a huge increase uh, in employment. These are people that actually had jobs. So these moms, partly a result of welfare reform, went out and got jobs. And we had about a 40% increase in work over about a four year period, at, in part as a result of welfare reform. I'm not attributing this all to welfare reform. And let me just mention right here, I think the other two big factors, we had a fabulous economy. Many of you may remember that. Jobs looking for people rather than the other way around. Uh, and the third thing was the earned income tax credit and a whole series of benefits that Congress really did. Congress over a period of about 20 years definitely changed the incentives on welfare. You did better outside welfare even if you had one of these lousy jobs that Heather's talking about because you got the earned income tax credit, which could be $6,000. You got the additional child tax credit. Often you got daycare, there's often got food stamps, so you can build a package of benefits that gets you to 18,000 or so. And a lot of people did that, and I think that's part of why. It wasn't just the toughness of welfare reform, it was the, it was the safety and the lure of getting additional benefits, I think, that had such an impact. So this tremendous increase in work. What happened to poverty? This is poverty. Uh, the bottom line, red line, is for all children, and the top two are for black children and children in single-parent families. If we're going to really have an impact on poverty in this country, we have to focus on single-parent families, especially the subgroup of single-parent families who are never married, because they have by far the highest rates of poverty, as you can see in this chart. And if you look at the chart about halfway across, you see this big decline. This differs somewhat uh, from what Michael showed you, but remember, this is this is single mothers. So all children, you can see there wasn't much change in poverty, but it's much lower. And for single mothers, kids in single mother families, and for black children, in part because they're disproportionately single parent families, huge decline in poverty. Then of course, ironically, because these families are now more subject to the whims of the economy than they had been before, when unemployment rises, as it did in 2001 in the recession and did with a vengeance in 2007 with the Great Recession, then uh, employment goes down. So they're like other Americans. They suffer from not being able to find jobs. They're going back up again after, unfortunately, at a slow rate. Uh, but we can expect that if we have a good economy with jobs available, a lot of mothers who would not have worked before, would not have worked before, will work. So this is... To me, this is the single most important impact of welfare reform and other associated factors, including reforms in federal law, that we have permanently changed the share of never married mothers and all single mothers who are working, and it's not likely to change. And now if we look at the, um, uh, how the system really works, uh, I have to advance the chart for you to see it. Uh, and this is it. This is from the Congressional Research Service, untouched by my sullied hands. Uh, and what it shows is over a period of years beginning in 1987, 
Poverty in the state of nature among single mothers, that means with no government benefits, no help, what's their poverty rate based on their own abilities and earnings? And then we add these benefits that I was talking about, the work support benefits, CITC and so forth, in stepwise fashion, and you can see what happens to the poverty rate. Take the last year. Life in the state of nature for single parent families, the poverty rate is 48%, and as we add more benefits, it comes down step by step by step, coming down to 24%. That is a huge impact to government programs on poverty. I think they're actually playing a role in the increase in work rates that, we, uh, that I showed you in the previous slide. So that part of the system is working. Not only that, I would argue that this is the single most important way that we've invented to reduce poverty. Social Security re reduces poverty more, but we just give money away there. We're never going to do that with prime age working adults. So this is the best system we have. If, we, if states can get low-income mothers into even these jobs that pay you know, $10 an hour, unless they have a lot of kids, they can escape poverty. And at least they're where they could advance themselves in the American economy. That part of it has been good. Uh, it could be better. We could improve it. But it's pretty good. Now, my criticism of welfare reform. I think I played a big role in welfare reform, and we were all crazy for the states. We love the states. In fact, there's a long story here about after the second veto, the states really picked welfare reform up off the carpet and got it back in play, and we finally passed. It would never happen without the governors. The governors were intimately involved, and we all thought block grants and great flexibility for the state were great. I think it's turned out to be a mixed blessing. So one of the things that I think we have to do First of all, Republicans have got to say, we won this, it was a great reform, but it's 20 years later, now we need to change things. And one of the things they need to change is the state flexibility, because the states are not doing what they thought they should, and they're not doing what they were doing earlier. So they spread the money all over the place, as Heather showed you, very good data on that. There's good data from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. So we need to tighten up on the states. I doubt that Republicans are going to be willing to do that, but I think we need to do it because if states are going to be the laboratories of democracy, they shouldn't play games and, and trick, in effect, the rules of welfare reform. They should be forced, which now turns out to be necessary, to actually try to help people get off welfare. And this brings me to the second problem. I do think there's a problem at the bottom among female-headed families. I think there are too many families in deep poverty. There are too many mothers who are not able to hold a job and raise their kids at the same time. I was a single parent for many years, and I, I can tell you it's a very challenging thing to do, especially if you have a lousy education uh, and have never had uh, financial support from your family. So we need to help that group at the bottom, and we are not doing it. We're just letting them be poor and, in some cases, deeply poor, half the poverty level. And we could do a lot more to improve that, but the states are not highly motivated to do it. The federal government is not going to be able to do it. So the bottom line here is I think we need to go back to a lot more waivers. That's where we got welfare reform in the first place. There were 43 waivers at the time that we passed the welfare reform bill, and almost all of them had to do with work and with uh, limiting family size through birth control and other measures. Uh, so we need to go back to that. We need the states exploring ways to help these families. We also need a lot more work on how to help them advance in the economy, as, as Heather pointed out. So I think, in summary, welfare reform has been at least a half success, maybe a little more than that, because I think it's an amazing thing. You can actually change the likelihood that a whole demographic group will work more, and that sets up all kinds of possibilities for the future. 
But the way it's being run now, I do not think we can call it successful at this point. We need to make changes in welfare. Thank you. Good morning. Um, first of all, I want to thank the Cato Institute for inviting me to speak today. It's truly an honor to be on a panel alongside think tank scholars who have done such respected, detailed, high quality work on this issue, and even one who helped to design the law we are discussing. I feel both flattered and intimidated. For I'm not a think tank scholar, I'm a journalist who knows just enough about statistics to get himself in trouble. But I'd like to begin by discussing a simple analysis I published in Family Studies that I think illustrates two basic truths about what happened after welfare reform. The first truth is one Rotten Haskins just discussed. When welfare benefits became contingent on work, a lot of people sought work and found it. Here you can see a chart I made with census data. It focuses on the children of single mothers, the demographic most affected by the law, and it plots, plots their poverty rate against the nationwide unemployment rate so we can see the effect of the economy. The poverty metric doesn't even include things like food stamps or health benefits, both of which have risen over the past two decades. It also doesn't include tax credits, most importantly the earned income tax credit, which was hiked around the same time that welfare reform took effect and was similarly designed to encourage work. It does include cash welfare, which the reform cut. And yet even by this measure, these kids were better off after the law than before it, including in the wake of the Great Recession. The post-reform blue years fall below the previous red years almost categorically. Before welfare reform passed, critics said vulnerable kids would be thrown into poverty. When the opposite happened, critics said it was just the economy. Two recessions later, that doesn't seem to be the case either. There are still many poor children in this country, but welfare reform made the problem better, not worse. These major changes to the safety net, both the 1996 law and the boosted earned income tax credit, succeeded in moving the poor from welfare to work. Having a job comes with, with its own expenses and challenges, of course, but it's the first step toward the middle class, and welfare reform helped people take it. This success is something we can't forget, even as we consider newer and more nuanced allegations that the reform was harmful to some. But speaking of those allegations, here is another chart that is almost identical, except that the poverty threshold is divided by 10. In other words, these folks would still be at or below the poverty line if they had 10 times as much income as they do. You might call that extreme poverty. And the trend is reversed. After the law, there was a sharp increase in kids living in families that reported very little income, and this became even worse with the recession. In some ways, these results are unambiguous and unsurprising. The reforms were designed with a carrot and stick approach, where those who worked received additional aid, while those who didn't work were cut off from cash welfare. It is hardly shocking that some people got the stick and that the number of people without cash grew, even as work lifted many others above the poverty line. Robert Moffat, one of the leading researchers in this area, put it most succinctly in a 2014 speech. Transfers fell for the worst off single parents and rose for the better off. But in other ways, we are in very murky territory here. For one thing, people who claim to live on virtually no cash are not always telling the truth. For another, as I mentioned before, my simple analysis using the official poverty measure doesn't include non-cash benefits like food stamps. This means we have to dig deeper, and the picture we uncover isn't very clear at all. 
There is one thing everyone agrees on, which is that the situation looks better when you correct the data to account for non-cash benefits and underreporting. What they don't agree on is how much better. To pick just one example from the left, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities recently reported that incomes fell for the bottom tenth of single mother families and did so immediately and dramatically after welfare reform. In 2005, there were down about $2,800 in cash benefits and $250 in food stamps, with private income, tax credits, and other programs replacing only about $700 of that loss. Increasing food stamp benefits helped incomes rebound after that, but only partially. Here's a striking chart from that report. Note especially the steep drop between 1996 and 1997 for the poorest single mother families. But in another new paper, Scott Winship, who will speak next on this panel, argues that even the very poorest might not be worse off at all. Obviously, I'll leave the details to him. But for now, suffice it to say that a lot depends on how exactly you process the data, including adjusting for inflation and putting a dollar value on things like health benefits. In fact, researchers don't even agree on whether health benefits should be counted at all. Others abandon income data altogether. Some prefer to look at a consumption, which tends to be much higher than income at the very bottom. Um, Robert Rector at Heritage has a new report out today focusing on this approach. Um, extreme poverty is very rare by this measure. We can also look at indicators of hunger, which fell after welfare reform but rose during the Great Recession. So that's a lot of puzzle pieces, and they don't all fit together. But at a minimum, I feel comfortable saying two things. One, welfare reform helps a lot of people, and there's no use pretending otherwise. Even in the Center on Budget's new analysis, nine-tenths of single-mother families were better off a decade after the reform, most of them significantly so. But two, the very poorest families have less cash than they used to, even if other benefits may have helped make up the difference, and even if they have more cash than they admit in surveys. This is a nearly unavoidable consequence of cutting off cash assistance, and it's a problem in itself. As Catherine Eden and Luke Schaefer document in their book, $2 a Day, it is hard to get by with little cash, even when you have benefits that pay for things like food or housing. It's tough to look for a job or make needed car repairs or buy clothes. The panel after this one is going to focus on where we go from here. But I would like to briefly lay out a few lessons I think we can learn from this experience. The biggest lesson is that a work-focused safety net can succeed. We have made important progress against poverty, and any future reforms should be made with an eye toward preserving that progress. I think there's also a lesson here, though, for conservatives who would like to charge full steam ahead and apply the ideas of welfare reform to other programs as well. Specifically, they must grapple with the fact that those other programs help to keep a lid on extreme poverty when cash welfare dried up. Changing those other programs would increase the incentive to get jobs even further, and it could address the fact that over time, work requirements have been gutted in some programs but it could also severely punish those who don't find work, whatever the reason. One way out of this conundrum is for states themselves to provide a way for non-working recipients to, provide, to earn their benefits. Early proposals for what became welfare reform actually included government-provided jobs. Community service is also an option, one the state of Maine is trying out in its food stamp program. We should keep an eye on such experiments. Yet another lesson, nicely explained in $2 a day, is that cash matters even when other benefits are available. This brings up the thorny question of how to get more cash to the poor without recreating the anti-work incentives we had 20 years ago. Broadly speaking, there are three ways to do this that warrant our attention. First, we can make sure TANF is doing its job. Here I'll just second the points that Heather Hahn and Ron Haskins made in the previous presentations, rather than repeating them. Second, we could rethink the paternalism of the rest of the safety net. 
We make a lot of money available to the poor on the condition that they spend it the way we want them to, on food, on housing, and even on their heating bills. Simply converting some of this aid to cash would give them much needed flexibility without changing the total amount of aid, but it would also provoke pushback from the more intrusive elements of both sides of the political spectrum, often called the nanny state on the left and the daddy state on the right. And third, we might want to consider some form of broadly available cash assistance. The idea would be to make sure that each family receives a modest amount of cash, staving off extreme poverty, while otherwise maintaining the work-focused incentives that made welfare reform a success. In particular, we might look at the child tax credit, which is popular with the anti-poverty left and the pro-family right alike. Right now, it's worth up to $1,000 per child, but it's not available to the poorest parents because it isn't fully refunded, fundable. I have suggested changing that. Other conservatives, including Patrick Brown and Josh McCabe, have made similar proposals, and just last week, two liberal think tanks, the Center for American Progress and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, released reports doing the same. <clears throat> A nice thing about the child tax credit is that the middle class already gets it, so we don't have to deal with the difficult issue of phasing it out as people earn more money, which can discourage them from doing so. And to address concerns that the credit itself would discourage work or encourage non-marital childbearing, other benefits like food stamps could be cut back to compensate. Again, the idea is to keep families out of extreme poverty. It's not to undo what we've accomplished by orienting our safety net around work. Thank you all so much for coming this morning, and I look forward to any questions. Good morning. Um, I want to start out by thanking uh, Michael Tanner and the Cato Institute for inviting me uh, to this event. Um, I, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the panel with my uh, colleagues here. Um, and I want to preface my remarks um, by saying a couple of things, one of which uh, is that I, uh, when welfare reform passed, um, admittedly was no one cared what I thought about policy, but I, I was actually opposed and was with Daniel Patrick Moynihan and thought that this was going to be a disaster. Um, and my research and that of others uh, has led me to, to believe otherwise. Um, I also, you know, personally would spend a, a lot more money on poor people than we currently do. It'd probably make some folks at Cato blush. Um, the reason I'm telling you, preface, prefacing my remarks with all this is that I'm going to tell a story that hopefully is going to convince you that this conventional wisdom that we have, uh, that uh, most people uh, were helped by welfare reform, but that there was a group at the bottom uh, that was hurt, um, that there's much less to that argument uh, than, than I think people believe these days. Um, and so before moving on, I also want to just acknowledge, because I think welfare reform has been such a success, um, it's worth acknowledging, I think, you know, Ron Haskins is one of the architects uh, of this bill. And, you know, I think Ron has probably done more than uh, any, very few people in the world, put it this way, have done as much to reduce child poverty in the United States as Ron has. Uh, so uh, congratulations to Ron, I say. Okay, so uh, because I'm worried about uh, being able to get through all this with my time, uh, I'm basically going to uh, blow through uh, a couple slides. My basic case is going to be that welfare reform reduced uh, dependence on cash welfare. It increased work uh, among single mothers. Um, it reduced child poverty while leaving deep uh, child poverty at, at or near historic lows. Um, and uh, therefore, welfare reforms lessons should be extended uh, to other safety net programs, uh, and they should be accompanied by other strategies uh, to promote upward mobility among kids, as, as Michael Tanner said. Um, most of this is going to be charts. I sort of speak in charts, uh, for better or for worse. 
Um, okay, so welfare reform reduced dependence on, on cash welfare. This is uh, a chart that I've updated uh, from a paper that I did with Christopher Jenks uh, uh, in 2004. And what you're seeing is between 1960 and 2014, uh, the number of uh, families getting uh, cash welfare expressed per 100 uh, single mother families. Okay, and what you see there is just this dramatic, unprecedented decline uh, that actually starts in 1995. Um, in the chart, you can see where, where state waivers began in 1993, um, but truly just an unprecedented decline uh, in the welfare rules. Now, how much of that was due to welfare reform versus other things? There's a literature on this that you know is mostly based on regression models, and you know, on some level, we'll, we will never know, right? But uh, but the literature sort of implies that the combination of welfare reform and declining real welfare benefits, which was part of welfare reform, they could have they could have had the block grant increase with inflation every year. Um, that combination is about as important or more important than the earned income tax credit uh, at reducing the rules, uh, and both were probably more important than the labor market over time. Um, Okay, a few charts on uh, welfare reform and how it affected work uh, among single mothers. Some of this is going to be repetitive of uh, things you've seen before. Um, so in this chart, the, uh, the top line just shows uh, the percentage of single mothers who worked at any time during the year. This is from a study by the Congressional Research Service. Um, and you can see that, uh, that it rose starting uh, in 1993, peaks in 2000, falls thereafter, but remains... Uh, above um, the, the pre-reform levels. Um, similarly, LaDonna Pavetti, who's gonna be speaking later on, has found that employment among single mothers without a high school diploma uh, increased from about 45% in 1991 uh, to 65% in 1999, then it fell, uh, but it was still 55% uh, in 2012. So, so it rose and it, and it stayed higher. Now to be clear, that doesn't mean uh, that what welfare reform did is make states do all these clever, creative things to make their, uh, their families more employable. The main thing that welfare reform did is it convinced a lot of people uh, not to apply for welfare in the first place and to try to find work instead, or to leave on their own volition uh, because they could sort of see the writing on the wall. So I, I do think that one weakness uh, with the current reform uh, or, or with the current law is that it actually it hasn't been that innovative uh, in terms of helping people build their skills. But on the other hand, you don't actually need that to reduce poverty. It turns out that a lot of people were employable. Um, this was a, a big debate when the bill passed. I think uh, what's clearly uh, been seen since is that uh, there were jobs out there, um, and, and a lot of people uh, were able to take them and benefit uh, from that. OK, a couple more charts on work. This is from Heather Boucher of uh, the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Um, I want you to look at the green line first, which is the trend in work for unmarried women uh, with children. You can see clearly uh, that increase in the 90s, followed by uh, a smaller decline. Uh, compare that against the blue line is single women without children. Uh, the fuchsia line is uh, married women without children. Um, and, and even among married, uh, married mothers, um, this line at the bottom, you can see it, it rises before reform uh, and it plateaus. So, so it's I think this is pretty good evidence that the policy changes of the 90s in combination uh, really causally um, caused welfare, uh, caused uh, work to increase. And then again, the literature on this, how much of it was due to welfare reform. Uh, you know, broadly speaking, the combination, uh, so the earned income tax credit is generally found to be the most important uh, factor in, in increasing work. 
Um, and then the combination of welfare reform and declining real benefits, about as important as, uh, as the strengthening of the labor market uh, during the 1990s. Okay, um, and then finally, uh, this is a chart that I think Ron updated uh, in his presentation, but it just shows you uh, that there was a bigger boost among never married uh, mothers uh, around the same period. Um, okay, so now I'm getting into uh, self-promotion uh, uh, as part of making my case. I have a paper that came out today uh, called Poverty After Welfare Reform, uh, in which I basically am looking at poverty trends over time, uh, different parts of the income distribution. And you know, starting out just with child poverty, uh, I think this is probably the most controversial, uh, the, the most uncontroversial uh, part of the story, uh, because you've heard it from other people. You know, even if you look at the red line at the top, by the official measure of uh, of cash income, uh, welfare reform is uh, uh, poverty. Child poverty is lower today than it was in 1996. Um, now, what I do in the paper is to is to make various improvements to this measure. The orange line adds non-cash benefits, that's mostly food stamps, um, but it also includes housing subs uh, subsidies, um, school lunches and breakfasts, uh, energy subsidies. Uh, that uh, lowers the levels more. Uh, it actually makes the trends look a little worse. Um, the third line adds taxes, um, and it is adding income for, uh, for this group for the most part because of refundable tax credits like the earned income tax credit. Um, the blue line uh, combines cohabiting couples. The official measure basically treats a married couple uh, as one unit. It combines their incomes. It takes into account that, that this family is realizing savings by living together. Uh, but it doesn't do that with cohabiting couples. It turns out cohabitation has risen over time. Um, and you can see uh, what happens to poverty there. Um, now, by that measure, if I stopped at that fourth line, um, that shows that child poverty in 2014 was at a historic low. Um, so not just lower than 1996, lower than it's ever been before. Um, the, the next two adjustments I'm going to make are more controversial. I spend more t a lot of time in the paper, uh, devote specific appendices uh, to arguing my case. Um, but even if you don't buy my case for these last two things, um, line four uh, indicates that child poverty is lower, lower than it's ever been. Okay, the next line, the green line, uses a better inflation adjustment um, than what's used in the official measure. Uh, that's a very controversial point. I don't think it should be. I think on the 30th anniversary of welfare reform, everyone's going to be using uh, the one that I use, which is called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Deflator. Um, read Appendix 1 in the paper uh, if, you, uh, if you're inclined to disagree. Uh, appendix 2, I think. Um, and then finally, or, or the, the purple line adds health benefits. Um, this, for some reason, is also controversial. Uh, and, and I would agree that how you value health benefits is not entirely clear. Um, but it is entirely clear that health benefits have value uh, to poor people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Medicaid. Um, we wouldn't have expanded health insurance so much uh, over the last 20 years. What I did was to take basically the amount that employers uh, or the federal government spends on these benefits per family uh, and, and take a 75% discount from that. So it adds about 200 bucks a month uh, to families uh, who have those health benefits. Uh, and you can see what happens. The trend just keeps going down. This last line corrects for the fact that income is underreported in household surveys. Um, partially corrects. It corrects for the fact that government benefits are unreported. Um, it doesn't correct uh, for the fact that uh, earnings and other private sources of income uh, are underreported as well. This ends up being a really huge deal. Um, Kathy Eden, uh, who is a scholar I, I recommend uh, a ton, 
um, made her name in the 90s uh, with a book that basically showed that women on uh, cash welfare assistance could not get by uh, on, on that money alone. Um, and the way that they made, thing, they, they made ends meet um, is that they had other sources that they generally wouldn't have reported to household surveys, uh, to government officials. Um, in fact, that extra money um, that they typically wouldn't have reported uh, was about, would have raised their income about 40% more uh, than their income with food stamps and housing benefits included in there. So, uh, so in some ways, you can think of, of this, this final line uh, ought to be even lower. Um, now, whether, the, whether the, the decline in poverty should be steeper, I think, is, another, is, an, is an open question. Um, but, but that line only partly corrects for this problem. Okay, quickly on this chart, this is just to show you, I'm not selling you snake oil. Um, the top three lines uh, are from uh, my estimates, from the Congressional Research Service, uh, and from uh, economists Bruce Meyer and James Sullivan. You can see those lines uh, line up really well, even though they, uh, they measure uh, poverty very differently. Um, the green line uh, is also from Meyer and, Meyer and Sullivan. And, and this is unique because they're looking at consumption rather than income. And they argue very convincingly, and I devote actually a couple of appendices to this, that income uh, is underreported in surveys, but consumption, uh, it's less of an issue for consumption. Um, and they find a steeper drop in poverty uh, with this green line. That orange line there is, is the final line that I showed you here, um, line seven. Uh, and you can see it lines up very well. Uh, with their measure. In fact, theirs drops a little bit more, suggesting that, uh, that if you corrected for all uh, underreporting of income, uh, you'd see an even better trend than I show. Um, oh, and also there's a line in there from, oh no, I thought there was a line from the Columbia researchers. Okay, so moving on, uh, now we're at deep child poverty. So deep poverty is being under half of the poverty line. So it's a, uh, a group with more hardship. Um, and, and, and there's more controversy at this point about uh, whether that has uh, risen or declined. And the basic message you know, that I want to give is whatever changes there have been have been very small. If you look at the purple line, you know, which, which combines all of my improvements, um, then deep poverty among kids was lower in 2013 uh, than it was in 1996. Uh, it nudges up a little bit in 2014. That's still lower than 1995 and 1997. Um, but basically, the, I mean, the real take home is that uh, very few people, very few children, thankfully, uh, are in deep poverty. Um, line number seven corrects for, partially corrects for this underreporting. Um, and, and it finds, actually, uh, so the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities was the first, I think, to, uh, to identify this. Uh, the trend looks a little bit worse there. But I mean, we're talking about an increase from 1.1% uh, in 1996, where that dashed line is, to 1.7% in 2012. Um, income has, has grown since then, so it's, I'm guessing that the line would look better uh, if we had more up-to-date numbers. Can't guarantee it. But the basic story is there hasn't been much, much change over time. Um, and, and, and we saw the huge declines in overall child poverty. So you've got this great uh, development uh, along with uh, what looks to be like not much harm done. Okay, and then finally, uh, this is a chart that shows the share of kids living in $2 a day poverty. This was the claim in, in the, uh, the book by Kathy Eden and Luke Schaefer, um, that, the, that the number of kids living on $2 a day had, had increased over time. Um, as you can see, first of all, you know, if, if you look down again at the, the purple line, 
uh, a little more volatility in these lines because there are fewer uh, people in the sample here. Uh, but again, you know, the, the 2013 line, uh, about the same as 1996. It jags up in 2014. I'm not sure how seriously to take that given that it is volatile. Uh, even if you take it seriously, uh, it's not much change. And what's more important, when you correct, when you correct for underreporting of benefits, you get these, uh, these lines at the bottom uh, that basically show you that no kid lives on $2 a day in the United States if they're in a household survey. There are homeless children um, who generally do not show up in these surveys. Uh, and we don't know uh, what the trend in homelessness is. I devote, devote some time uh, in my paper to that as well. But essentially, you know, in, in 2012, one in 1,500 children was living uh, in extreme poverty. And, and this doesn't include corrections for underreporting of private income, remember, right? Um, uh, so uh, the other point I want to make, uh, Eden and Schaefer make a big deal about cash being different than non-cash benefits, uh, which is an important point in some regards. But even if you believe that that red line is somehow true, which you should not, um, that rise started in the 1970s, right? So to blame welfare reform on this is not quite clear uh, that, that we ought to be doing that. Um, it also increases among groups that were unaffected by welfare reform, such as the elderly, uh, childless uh, households. Married college graduates saw a rise in $2 a day poverty, if you believe the numbers. Um, my basic message is you should not uh, believe those numbers. Um, okay, I'm gonna end there, my time's up. Uh, I can talk more about, uh, about changes uh, and, and the lessons from reform uh, in Q&A if we get to that. Thank you. to each of our guests for that enlightened um, commentary on welfare reform and the results of welfare reform. We're going to move into a Q&A period now. So I'm going to start us off. I was actually fascinated by some of the research that Scott showed us and went through some of those slides. And one of the questions that I have, maybe for Scott and also for others on the panel, is how much of what we see in the differences in the some of the poverty measures, such as um, unemployment or caseload are actually due to welfare reform. And when we're looking at some of these population surveys, how much of them are due to underlying factors which are moving some of those variables around? Um, I'd love for Scott to weigh in and then anyone else who's interested. Uh, you know, so I think we have a better sense of how much during the 90s was due to reform versus due to the economy. And, uh, and so the uh, the... I think research that I, that I cited there was that uh, essentially the uh, reform itself uh, combined with the decline in real benefits, um, so, so as welfare became less valuable, fewer people got on it, um, together was at least as important as the expansion of the earned income tax credit, uh, both of which were more important than uh, the, the decline in the unemployment rate overall during that period. Since then, I don't think, at least I don't know of a lot of research um, that's tried to uh, distinguish between, between those different strands. Uh, you know, the, the, the percent of single moms receiving TANF has declined fairly steadily, um, even after 2000, uh, when the economy was doing well, when it was not doing well. Uh, so that suggests that probably the, the reforms have, have played uh, a pretty big role. Great, thank you. Um, Ron and Heather, are there, is there anything that we're missing here in this picture as we look at some of the sort of poverty indicators that are moving? Are there other components or motivators that we are not talking about here today which are influencing those things? 
I think when we look at the, the charts that show, if you look at um, cash income, this is the poverty level. If you look at adding these benefits, it's a lower level. I think what those show is that government programs are working. You know, they are, when you add those things, you have fewer and fewer um, people who are, who are poor. When you get down to the very bottom and you're looking at the families who are supposedly living on $2 a day, less than $2 a day, and Eden and Schaefer say you really can't survive on that and they, there are these unreported sources of income, I think we have to think about what that really means. If someone is selling plasma, if someone is selling sex, if they're doubling up with families, that doesn't mean they're okay. It doesn't mean that they're not poor. Thank you, appreciate it. We are going to move into an audience Q&A now. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. I'll call on you and wait for the microphone. Um, please keep your questions nice and concise and also end them with a question mark. Thank you. <laughs> Start on the left, in the middle. Thank you. Is it on? Um, I just wanted to um, ask you a kind of a version of the same question I asked Michael Tanner before. Um, uh, AFDC was ended because one way or the other it wasn't working. Now we have TANF and we have uh, a bunch of other uh, programs, um, uh, in-kind programs. We also have the EITC, of course. Um, providing for, for the poor and the low-income families. Now, if, if these programs are still aimed at eliminating poverty, do you see a, a um, um, punctuation mark for these programs, or do you see them as a um, perennial part of, of um, uh, our, our economy? Uh, and, and before I leave that question, what I, what I would like you to do, if, if you see this as, as a perennial, uh, a, a permanent institution, are there other ways to, do, to, to provide this? In other words, is there another way to provide income redistribution than through these programs? Thank you. I mean, I think I think it's pretty clear that as a society, we've we've chosen non-cash benefits uh, and and tax credits for for the working uh, the working poor as the way that we uh, that we want to try to reduce uh, and prevent poverty in the United States. Um, that's probably not going away anytime soon. I, I think you know Robert's uh, point about you know why not just give everybody cash. Is attractive in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the concern and the reason why we don't do that is, is uh, policymakers are concerned about what uh, people will actually spend the money on. Um, but uh, I mean, if you if you uh, if you think people know best what they what they need, uh, then giving them cash instead makes a lot of sense. It also makes the poverty statistics uh, a lot easier to interpret. Um, so uh, for that reason alone, I might I might be interested in experimenting with it. I think there's a danger, though, uh, in emphasizing cash too much because it's easy to count. Americans can see it, uh, and they will see how big the welfare state is, much clearer than under the current system. 
it's much easier to say we need to give food to babies and health care to babies and housing and so forth. I think over time, if we converted more of those programs to cash, total spending would probably fall. Now, there, I bet there are people in this room who think that's a good idea because uh, it has increased so dramatically over time. Uh, but I think that would be a consequence of it. I still think the key is getting as many people as possible to work. I don't think we're – think of it this way. In 1996, when we passed welfare reform, you take all the people in poverty who weren't on a disability program, even, and even some of those, and there were a lot of people in there. This was the essence of the debate in Congress. There are a lot of people in there that could support themselves. You needed to change the system to get them to do it, and that's what welfare reform did. And they, as Scott's chart shows, mine show, the Congressional Research Service, work is up, poverty's down. That's the headline. Now the question is, how do we get more people out of that group? It's a much smaller group now. You would think that logically there are more people with problems, barriers to employment, not necessarily disabilities, but, you know, depressed, poor transportation, live in an area where there aren't many jobs and so forth. And that is the part that government could really help on. That is why I think we need to have more waivers by the states to give them a chance to explore other ways that they can do it. And I think we ought to have strong work requirements in the other welfare programs. Right there in the back, the middle. To what extent have people simply moved from TANF to Social Security Disability, which I understand has gone up 10 times uh, in, like over the last decade? So I think the question is, how much are individuals substituting other programs for TANF? Yeah, well, no, it's about, uh, especially SSI, Supplemental Security Income, and it's true. Uh, and I know for a fact, I've talked to a number of people in the states, that they make a bigger effort than they did in the past to get people on SSI. If people lose welfare and are dependent, they try to get them on SSI because the benefit is 100% federal, although many states supplement the benefit. So that's the motivation to do it. If you look at the SSI roles, they have grown over time, not by a factor of 10, but they've grown over time. And if you look at health surveys, there's almost no evidence that Americans are less healthy, they have more disabilities or more days where they can't work and so forth. So this is entirely uh, something generated by the way we do the program. And a lot of people want to change it. However, mark this. We had a golden chance last year because the program was running out of money. And the Congress had to do something. What a great opportunity to, at the very least, try experiments with the, helping these people work, just like welfare reform. And instead of doing that, they just took money out of the Social Security Trust Fund and put it in the SSI Trust Fund. That's a congressional solution to the problem. It's going to be very difficult to do because a lot of people feel sorry for disabled people and they forget the issue whether they really are disabled. That's the point that many people are making. We have too many people in disability roles who are not truly disabled. I think this does get to the important point of the incentives and the differences in, in the differences in the incentives in those, those um, programs. If there are people who are truly disabled and unable to work, then it isn't appropriate for them to be in TANF long-term. That is a short-term program that's supposed to help them get work. And if they are people who are not going to be able to, then they should be on disability. But at the same time, uh, work can be very valuable, even for someone who 
who is disabled but can still, um, is not completely disabled to the extent of their ability, working can be useful for them. So I think when we have these really just um, clear lines between if you're on TANF, you must work, and if you're on SSI, you can't work, um, that doesn't fit the realities of the, the range of disabilities and the range of abilities. Right here in the front. Uh, thank you, Nick Farmer. Uh, could you speak to the issue of uh, the impact of technology on job availability and the controversy now where people believe that uh, technology will perhaps dramatically reduce the number of jobs available and how will welfare reform or whatever technique you want to use apply in a context where there may not be jobs available for people who truly want to work? Well, I, th I mean, I think first of all, it's important to recognize that uh, that the argument that there's weak demand for labor out there is exactly the argument um, that I uh, and people who were opposed to uh, the welfare reform bill in 1996 made. Um, the idea was, you know, these, these folks all want to work, how, but they, had, you know, the economy isn't producing jobs for them. It's going to be a disaster, and I, th I think that was shown not to be true. Uh, there's there's actually a lot of debate about uh, technological unemployment and whether technological change is, is really going to uh, reduce employment in the future. Um, but to the extent that it does, it's going to do so because it, it's going to make things cheaper. Um, it, so everything that we buy will become a lot cheaper. And in fact, people won't have to work as much as we work today for the same standard of living. So a big drop in demand for labor in the future doesn't have to be uh, a lot more unemployment uh, than we have today. It could be a 30-hour work week um, instead of a 40-hour work week as, as the standard. It could be retiring at 55 uh, instead of later. Um, so I, I think it remains to be seen, uh, but it also doesn't show up in the data yet uh, in terms of productivity growth. Um, well, we'd, we'd like to see more productivity growth uh, than, than what we've had. Here on the right. Thank you. Um, nobody's mentioned the underground economy. Um, in the discussions that we had uh, writing a book on, on welfare, we encountered a lot of people who were uh, trading babysitting for car repairs, uh, people who were uh, house cleaning in exchange for meals. There's a lot of that going on out there, and I wonder if any of the charts, uh, since this income is uh, almost certainly never measured in, in any of the surveys, if any of the charts take that into account, because I think there's probably a lot more of that than plasma selling. Uh, and people can do quite reasonably well with it under some circumstances. Uh, this is one of the reasons that consumption measures, poverty measures based on consumption rather than on earnings or income, are superior in many respects. This is one of them because if they earn the money, presumably they spend it, and as reported in surveys, they may be underrepresented in the surveys, so you don't get a very good measure of it, but uh, that's another reason that consumption is a better measure. Scott, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it's also the case that the, the, the sort of more severe you get in terms of who you're looking at, severe hardship, 
a lot of these kind of ideas break down. You know, what is income? Um, I looked into the research showing uh, that, for instance, the number of people who get food stamps and don't have any other and don't have any cash income uh, that that that's gone up. Um, you know, again, I think that in the, for reasons I give in the report, there are reasons to question that. But if you actually look at the at the report from uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, they went and they interviewed folks who uh, who didn't have any cash income but were getting SNAP, and it turns out uh, that a lot of them, you know, are doing odd jobs. Um, uh, a lot of them are getting uh, non-cash benefits uh, from other programs. Um, it, it becomes difficult to sort of. Uh, if you're asking someone who's who's at the very bottom, you know, to account for all the income they had over the course of a year, uh, the kinds of income that they that they get are uh, are, are sort of scattered enough um, that it's you know it's difficult to actually account for them. Uh, so, it's, so it's not just that they that they have steady work and and just are lying about it. Um, to some extent, uh, you know, the way the way people at the bottom get income isn't like the way the rest of us get income. Okay, a couple more, and then we'll wrap up. On the right. Uh, Mr. Haskins, when you were talking about uh, the second half of your remarks, so the TANF was not exactly uh, working out as well as it probably could have, at the end of it, you were blaming a lot of that on the states, on their performance. And I was just wondering, could you be more specific about how the states are negatively affecting TANF, and what is the motivation for the states to doing that? Is it some kind of requirement of the federal government in which they're looking at statistics that meet in order for them to get federal money as opposed to actually um, solving the question of poverty? Two points. One, based on the actual data, which was shown up here, <clears throat> that the states are spending uh, a huge amount of their money on things other than the two most important goals of the welfare reform, which was cash assistance and work, and hopefully reducing cash, cash assistance and increasing work. And back before welfare reform or in the early days of welfare reform, states spent most of their uh, TANF dollars on those two things. Now, even with a generous accounting, you can see great charts on the center of the budget, uh, on the website of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, much less to spend on those two activities. So, for example, the states spend TANF dollars on college education. They spend TANF dollars on child protection programs, uh, for which we already give the states about $8 billion. So they're not spending it on what they should. So that's the first thing I would do. I would have much tighter controls, and I would try to get the states to spend their dollars, their TANF dollars, on either work or cash welfare. And then you saw the, uh, also in, in, uh, uh, in, Heather, in uh, Dr. Hahn's charts, that, uh, that the states are uh, giving a much lower percentage of poor single mothers a cash benefit. And that is why the problem at the bottom has increased, notwithstanding Scott's, you know, under, unless you're a brilliant genius and know how to make it go away by running a calculator, uh, there's been a problem. And, and by the way, Scott, even if, there, if the, it hasn't increased, people at the bottom who are desperate need help. That's one of the purposes of TANF. So that's what they should be uh, focusing the dollars on. Second thing, more speculative, my own vision was that once people got in the workforce, once single mothers got in the workforce, they would discover that they like working and that it, life is better when they earn their own money. And that, by and large, happened. 
So the next thing that would happen is they would try to figure out ways to make more money. So they would get training. They would go to night school. They would do things that lots of other people do to make sure that they're making 20 or $30 an hour rather than 10 or 12 That has not happened. And that is where the states could really come in. If they're the laboratories of democracy, they should figure this out. We do have very good experimental studies showing that some kinds of training, especially <laughs> focused on fairly short-term training, focused on jobs available in the local economy, have had major impacts on employment and, uh, and on hourly wages. So that's the kind of thing the states ought to be doing instead of draining all the money off TANF and spending on something else. One last question. If you want to wait for the mic. Good morning. I'm Lois Tett, and I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, due to the influx, or it's rumored, up to a million Syrians coming in to all the states, what kind of effect will that have on your poverty reform? I couldn't hear. Was the, the question about immigration and refugees? coming in and we just couldn't hear. Sorry, maybe restate. A million Syrians are coming in here. How will that affect your poverty reform? Will okay. it all come from the same pot? So I think the question is about immigration and how that will impact poverty programs. Will it strain the system? Do we need more? TANF is not available to recent immigrants. There's a five-year uh, limit, five-year time limit um, of being in the country legally before you can qualify. So there's, the, there's not an immediate threat, <laughs> threat um, to, to the, all those people coming on and getting on TANF rolls. There are other government assistance programs designed to assist refugees directly. Um, and you know, th then there's a longer-term issue of how, as people come in and uh, find their footing, what will happen. But as far as TANF is concerned, someone who arrives right away is not um, eligible for federal TANF funds. Okay, great. With that, we're going to close up. Thank you all for being here, and a warm thank you to our panelists for the insightful discussion.